only that are you saying that their lives matter, but you're also suggesting that uh, justice matters. It's important that justice is wanted and justice is valuable. And you recognize that the thing that is valuable and should be beloved by all of us is absent. The Ethicist Corner, brought to you by the Kegley Institute of Ethics. Welcome to The Ethicist Corner, everyone. My guest today, uh, thrilled to have with us, is Dr. Maisha Cherry, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of California, Riverside and a former visiting fellow at Harvard University at the Edmund J. Software Center for Ethics and the Hutchins Center for African and African-American Research. Dr. Cherry is a, a very productive scholar uh, whose books include, uh, but are not limited to, The Moral Psychology of Anger, co-edited with, co with Owen Flanagan in 2018, Unmuted, Conversations on Prejudice, Oppression, and Social Justice, published in 2019, and the forthcoming The Case for Rage, on the role of anger in anti-racist struggle coming out in 2021 with Oxford University Press. Dr. Cherry is also a regular contributor to several public venues, such as the Los Angeles Times, The Atlantic, The Huffington Post, and several more. And we'll talk about that work a little bit today. Uh, Dr. Cherry, I just wanna say thanks so much for being with us today, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, looking forward to our conversation. So could you talk to just, a, just a bit to kind of set the stage here a little bit for those who, who, who don't know you, uh, where are you from and uh, what kind of guided you to your uh, career in professional philosophy? Yeah, so uh, I was, my birth certificate would say that I was, I was born in, in Wilmington, Delaware. That is the truth. I mean, it doesn't just say that, but it's, it's the truth. <laughs> so I was born in Wilmington, Delaware, and I, I moved from there when I was about eight years old. And uh, we moved to where my, my mother was from, which was uh, Portsmouth, Virginia, and uh, lived there for several years. Um, it's a place where I like fell in love with basketball. Uh, so I played basketball in high school. And around my, when I was 16, we moved back to Wilmington, Delaware. So I was there for my junior and senior year of high school and uh, played basketball again. I ended up getting a basketball scholarship at Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, when I came onto campus, my, my major was uh, telecommunications. I knew that I was going to be like the next Oprah Winfrey. And so I wanted to prepare for that. Exactly. And I remember being on campus was like the first time. And if you can imagine kind of like, I mean, it wasn't North Carolina or Georgia, but it was a Southern campus, right? Baltimore is pretty Southern. Mm -hmm. Being around on a campus and, you know, uh, having you know, quiet time with myself as a, as a teenager. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of felt like, you know what, this may, this is a, you know, at the moment I thought, oh, I'm just comfortable here. But I think I just had this moment where it was something about the university setting mm -hmm. uh, that I just knew was a space for me. Um, and I don't know if I took a philosophy course, I doubt it, but I heard that philosophy was a major. And what I was doing through my, my first semester of college was I was like deeply reflecting. I was alone, um, just deep, very deeply reflecting about life. And I decided um, the second semester to change my major just randomly to philosophy because I felt that they were, they were doing what I was doing. Mm -hmm. um, so I changed my major to philosophy and I with a minor in religious studies. And at that time, I thought that I was going to be a religion scholar. Um, and so immediately after undergrad, I went to uh, divinity school at Howard University, was there for three years. Um, and then I just felt like, hey, no, I want to I work in the nonprofit sector, right? I was just very motivated to make a change in the community. And I was like, if I want to do academia, I can always go back to it. But for now, I just want to do immediate work. Mm -hmm. So I started working in the nonprofit sector for about 10 years. And then the bug just hit me again. Um, 
I started adjuncting on the weekends and in the evenings while I was still holding down a full-time job. And just as the years went by, I just think that I began to really fall in love more with philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I decided it was just more of the space for me as opposed to religion. I just felt like it was more limitless as far as the questions that I could ask. Yeah. Um, and so I applied to grad school and, 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 and it goes, goes from there. So, you know, usually people would like to report or they went to graduate school right after undergrad for me it was like a long, you know, a long process, but a process in which I think a lot of what I did in between school informed kind of how I approach what I do now, Um, public engagement, et cetera, et cetera, having your foot on the ground, um, although the other foot is in academia. Um, So that's, that's, that's the journey. Yeah. And that's, it's, uh, it's interesting there for a number of reasons. Some I want to delve into further here, but first of all, I actually had forgotten that you're from back East. I'm I'm from Maryland. (laughs) So I, I spent some time in Wilmington and, uh, Oh, and, really? Uh, yes, I have. I have friends who live there, but uh, it's rare that people say that other than Joe Biden is it's, right. it's rare. <laughs> so, you know, part of it, you know, the, yeah, the interesting, uh, path you've carved as a professional philosopher, which is, is a really, really fascinating career and a highly productive and impactful one is you, you consistently write for and publish in, publicly accessible venues like the LA Times and the Atlantic and Huffington Post, as I mentioned. And, um, you know, many academics and philosophers don't, don't do this. And I, you know, kind of, you've been really successful at it. And I actually want to dive deep on, on a particular piece here in a moment, but just maybe more generally at first, you know, who are you aiming to speak to when you write these pieces? Um, you know, is there a specific reason that you, that you take on this kind of writing and while like doing op-eds and, and, and public articles, like who are you aiming to, to reach oftentimes when you're writing those types of pieces? So, yeah, I mean, I think I, I think it's, it's important for me to say kind of the connection between um, what I was doing prior to coming back into academia. Mm-hmm. Um, my heart, my focus, who I was seeing day to day was ordinary folk. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, I mean, I'm not from an academic background. I'm the first person in my family to go to college, get a PhD, et cetera, et cetera. So my affinities and my loyalties lie elsewhere, or at least... Um, supersede or override kind of basic academic professional obligations, right? And so when I when I write these things, um, um, I mean, of course, I like to say I'm writing for everyone, right? Um, But I'm thinking about those folk, right? I'm I'm trying my best to communicate or be in conversation with them. And whoever them is going to, it's going to depend what the venue is, because it's going to depend on what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm I'm a very strange academic in the sense and I think in some ways this helps. I think for lots of people, they feel kind of imposter syndrome or whatever. But I think, I, I think the benefit of not, uh, you know, this being new to my life, to my family's life, um, is that I don't know how it's supposed to go. And so I can do whatever I want to do, right? Mm-hmm. And I can also remix it. And so in some ways, you know, um, I mean, I'm part, I, I grew up religious communities where someone would go to school and get a PhD and come back into the community and preach every Sunday, right? Um, the mentors that I had in my life, they were educated, but they were able to impart in ways in which, you know, we only a- a- admire. So I, I'm used to that kind of service. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was just a norm. And so it's not, it wasn't surprising or something that I had to like think extra of if I'm going to do public stuff versus academic stuff. I think right. it's just part of the way in which I was raised, um, which you always speak to ordinary folk. You're always in combination, conversation with ordinary folk because the goals of doing the work is to take us higher, right? You can't go higher without all of us. Um, so it all, it's all, it all depends. So that's, that's kind of like the spirit and at least the goal, but the audience changes in general, the audience will change or vary. 
um, depending on what the content of the venue is. So you have something like the Boston Review. Yeah, maybe kind of get a sense of who reads the Boston Review. Yeah. Um, I mean, no shade, but there is a type of political and intellectual community that reads the Boston Review. Sure. Um, um, and so when I'm writing the piece on anger, for example, um, there's certain ways I can write in which I feel that this is just proper for this particular audience. Right. And then you have spaces, I'm trying to, um, then you have like more of an international venue like uh, New Philosopher Magazine, which I'm a regular contributor to. And so when I write, I have to make sure um, that even if someone is in New Zealand, they can at least connect to kind of even the social issues that I'm talking about. So it all, it all depends what the venue is um, and what the topic is. But my, my intent is not to write just for professional philosophers or academics or people with masters or PhDs or not even people with BAs, is to try to write in such a way um, that I'm connecting with, with as many folks and diverse folks as, as possible. Yeah, I mean, well said, and it's something I, I definitely connect with as well. I mean, hence, I mean, even the podcast we're doing, right? I mean, trying to, you know, and that you do as well. And and uh, so many other aspects, I think, with philosophy, just, you know, for me, kind of part of the human condition, really, right? So there's, right. there's so many opportunities to connect with people far beyond academia around these issues. Um, and, you know, one of, one of the, the pieces, actually, Maisha, that I was rereading, you know, I was preparing for our, our discussion today, um, that I found very powerful um, is a piece you wrote for The Atlantic. It was published in August 2020, uh, Anger Can Build a Better World. Mm -hmm. And you also speak, you, you speak on this, you've written on the topic of, of anger and has spoken on it in several other forums too. There's a 2015 TEDx talk that I'd highly recommend from Maisha called Anger is Not a Bad Word. Um, but, you know, this, this piece in The Atlantic was coming in the wake of, you know, major protests against police brutality um, and violence. And uh, particularly in the context of standing up for the value of black lives, standing up for justice, encouraging others to act, you argue in that piece that anger uh, is a key tool for creating a better future. And there's a, there's a passage that you wrote, I, I, I have a few questions, but I just wanna read this passage, I found it really powerful. Um, you write, um, when I originally saw the footage of George Floyd's death, my heart was broken, not only because a black man was dying before my eyes, but because I had seen so many of these videos before. So many cries like Floyd's have been ignored, but my anger refused to allow me to despair. As much as anger is a response to past events, it is also forward-looking. Anger makes us believe that we can shape a new, more just world. It is a source of hope, one that propels the struggle against seemingly insurmountable obstacles. So can you say more about the distinctive virtues of anger in the realm of protest? Um, you know, social justice movements maybe more generally, but you're, you're talking specifically about, you know, anger around police brutality, the death of George Floyd and so many others. And I, people have kind of a negative reaction to anger in some cases, right? They're afraid of it. So I, it's really fascinating what you're talking about. Can you say the, talk more about the distinctive virtues of anger as you see it in these contexts? Yeah, well, I think people seem to have overreact, you know, reactions about other people's anger mm -hmm. um, and not necessarily their own. And so the question is, why is that the case? You know, I, I, I wrote that piece, um, you know, at the same time in which I was wrapping up a book on anger. Um, and I was hesitant with writing a piece or writing any kind of pieces in response to those events um, because I had already uh, began and um, kind of wrote the, the, anger, the anger book in the aftermath of Trayvon Martin, right? So these have been ideas and thoughts that I've been thinking about uh, for the last few years. And I think um, when I got invited to write this particular piece, you know, you will hope when you work on these particular areas, um, 
and this may not be a good goal to have because it may be just not the case that it will happen. But you want to hope that hopefully what I write about will be irrelevant one day. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I was kind of um, when, when the George Floyd situation happened, it's as if, you know, man, I got to write about this again. I got to defend or allow us to uh, defend protesters again, or I got to I got to remind them. Uh, that their emotions, that they shouldn't be ashamed of their emotions. So that was kind of like the spirit of the piece, um, kind of summarizing some of the ideas in the book, as well as trying to summarize the kind of the aims of the book. So here's, here's, here's kind of what the, the basic argument is about. And so you already have individuals who are angry at just injustice in which, I mean, of course, I think all of us will agree that anger is a fitting response to, to injustice. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that I, that I noticed um, is that the way in which people will interpret that anger, right? And so anger, I mean, there's certain kind of strategies, techniques that people use, right? So either you, um, you suggest that their, their anger is too much, or you suggest that their anger is going necessarily going to lead to violence, or you suggest that we can't hear you because you are angry, right? So you got all those moves happening, and you can imagine if you are a protester, just someone who's not on the street but still is angry, I mean, you have a choice to make, right? You can, you, can, you can think that what you're feeling is not a good feeling to have. Um, and so you, you feel kind of a sense of shame of, of anger, um, but having shame for the anger doesn't eradicate it, right? Um, that, you, that can end up becoming not only unexpressed, but repressed and suppressed, right? So that can cause problems, right? Or you think, um, I have this anger, I'm not ashamed of it, but I don't know what it can do, right? Right. And so what I wanted to do, one of the reasons of writing the piece um, is I wanted to talk to those those individuals. I want to talk to the individual who felt some kind of shame. And I think our culture is so strange um, that we live in kind of a rageful culture. Um, but yet we make certain only certain individuals feel kind of shame about that particular anger. So I wanted to, I wanted to talk to those individuals, someone who might feel ashamed for the anger. And then someone who said, well, I got it. What can I do with it? Like, what is his possibilities, right? And in the background, um, I was talking to, or let's just say more whispering to um, those who had a problem with it, right? right. So that was, kind of, that was kind of the goal of the piece. And one of the things that I basically argued is, you know, listen, anger is emotion that all of us have. I mean, we have these emotions um, and all of our emotions, you know, seem we, whether they innately have this or as human beings, we respond to them in a certain kind of way, but they have the ability to do certain kinds of things in our brains for us, et cetera, et cetera. So I want to communicate that. So one of the things that I say is that, listen, having anger, first of all, please know that it's a fit and an appropriate response to injustice. So no need to feel ashamed about that. Right. Um, another thing I wanted to, 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 to let people know is that when you express your anger, a lot of people want to know, okay, is it going to inform a law? Is it going to inform a policy? And I want to say, whoa, 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 let's, before we even get there, the anger is already doing some work in the world. Well, what is it doing? Just by being angry at the fact that those police officers did that to George Floyd, you are within itself expressing a value for his life, right? Expressing a value uh, for Brianna's life. Um, you are saying, <laughs> even before you wave a sign, you are already saying by the angry expression that Black Lives Matter, right? You're declaring kind of value in the world. Mm-hmm. But not only that, are you saying that their lives matter, but you're also suggesting that 
uh, justice matters, that justice is important, that justice is wanted and justice is, is valuable. And you recognize that the thing that is valuable and should be beloved by all of us is absent, right? So it, it, it declares value. Um, it reminds us when something that is so valuable um, needs to be present, but it is absent. So it alerts us to all these things, right? So you have those things happening. Um, but no doubt that anger also motivates us in a certain kind of way, right? It, it, it honestly makes us, and I think this is the kind of the sentiments of the quote that you, that you quoted, was that it literally motivates us to want to do something about whatever is causing the anger. Right. Um, psychologists like to call it kind of an approach motivation. For example, fear makes us want to go away from the target of that fear. Uh, but anger motivates us to approach that thing, to do something about the thing that's causing the anger. And so that's why you have people who couldn't help but get out on the streets. That's why you couldn't help, um, you know, some people deciding um, to vote. <laughs> some people, I mean, it just, it just brings you into action, right? And the ways that we can account for that, of the activity that's happening um, in our brains when we're angry. Um, but, but anger can also make you believe uh, that you can actually change the situation. I mean, there's been studies... Um, to suggest that when people are angry, it, it, re it changes their self-belief and their optimism. Um, but it also changes or affects the risk that they are willing to take in order to get that particular object. And all that you know, has, has, has come about not only the neuroscience, but also psych psychological studies. And that that's the case in the context of what self people self-report, in the case of the context in which you have these experiments. Can you imagine what that is doing actually on the streets? Right. Um, and, and nonprofit organizations or in the way in which people relate to each other. Right. So anger, if anger can do all of that, we don't want it to disappear. We yeah. don't want anyone to suppress it. We don't want anybody to repress it. We also don't want people um, uh, to condemn individuals who have it. Right. So the whole emphasis of the piece is to recognize these unique features um, to anger um, and to remind people, listen, just like any other kind of emotion or any kind of quality, it can be extreme. Right. It can be detrimental. Yes, it could be dangerous. But I, I want to suggest that we ought not to paint anger in these broad strokes, right? They just, just like there's agape love, there's brotherly love, there's familiar love, there's also different kinds of anger. And I want to suggest um, that when we have this anger directed at racial injustice in which we're trying to get change, and I call it Lordian, Lordian rage, that is the kind of anger that I see in these streets um, and, and the change that they can bring about. Um, that they have brought about. I mean, think about the changes. We may call them subtle changes, small changes that happen in policing, the changes where people embracing the movement that was quite different four years ago. I mean, things have happened as a result of that. People's lives that we can't see data-wise have been changed and affected as a result of that. And so I just wanted to give a place, a space for us to see this everyday emotion that we have, see the power that it has to motivate us, um, to communicate to other people, to challenge. And I think that's, that's important, not only in our political lives, but also in our interpersonal lives. Yeah, and it's a, I mean, it's, there's a number of interesting things there. And I'm, I'm wondering if, you know, you've, you've spoken a bit before about um, how, you know, anger is a motivating force, which you talked about before there just, just a moment ago, but also you mentioned this in the context of Gandhi and Dr. King and kind of major social movements. And I, I feel like, Oftentimes, actually, maybe it's just a misunderstanding, but people don't associate, say, uh, Gandhi with anger. They think primarily, they think of actually as opposition to nonviolence. They might see the same right. thing with Dr. King, too. But it seems like, actually, you've talked about, you know, Gandhi's work, Dr. King's work, and the, the greater civil rights movement, the, the work and the multiple actors that are leading to that, doesn't happen without a lot of anger, right? Kind of, <laughs> right. So, so, so you see that as a 
as an equally motivating force that should be kind of part of that historical record that we talk about more actively? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, there's been, so let's talk about King for a second. I mean, yeah. we like to use King as like the exemplar of forgiveness and love yeah. and having a non-angry response. I mean, there are philosophers who, who do indeed argue this. Martha Nussman more recently argued this in her 2016 book, Anger and Forgiveness. And also more recently in a, in a chapter in the To Shape a New World Anthology of King's Political Thought. I mean, I have a very, you know, and she uses King's text to try to give an account of what he thought about anger. I too also use King's text. Mm -hmm. And um, also his life to kind of support my premises about kind of the power of, of, of anger. So here are some ways that we see King use his anger for good. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so you think about letter from a Birmingham jail, right? Right. What has become or is becoming kind of like a classical text in political philosophy and political theory. Right. Mm -hmm. Um. So let's think about this. Well, what's, uh, what brought about, what motivated him, him to write that letter? So his lawyer comes to him and basically shows him the letter that the clergyman had, the open letter that the clergyman had disseminated in Alabama and basically, you know, um, telling him, listen, um, be patient, um, you know, you are outsider, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so he goes, goes to King's jail cell. And King's in jail at this point. He goes and tell him, basically, you can... If I can phrase it another way, he goes and throws shades on the clergyman and be like, yo, guess what? That's what they saying about you here in these streets. So, so what he records um, is he said when he told King this and showed him the letter, King was furious. I mean, he was angry, hmm. like mad as hell, right? Mm -hmm. What does he do? Gets a newspaper and start penning a letter from a Birmingham jail, right? right. The way that the lawyer describes the work I mean, he says, yes, it's a classical piece of, of political, of political theory. Um, it's a piece that, that JFK, um, the next speech that he would make publicly about civil rights was inspired by that, by that letter. And he says, and a letter that was written from a black man's pain and his fury, hmm. right? So we like to teach that letter, <laughs> nonviolence, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't realize that like what motivated him to write those thoughts was just, was anger. <laughs> Was anger. Right. So, so, uh, and then there's this just lines of, 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 of work when he eulogizes W.B. Du Bois, for example. And in some ways, he's also, I'm a, I don't want to say he's throwing shades at Black Panthers, but one of the things people might think, well, the issue that he had with the Black Panther movement, Black Power movement, for example, was just their, their emphasis on they were just too angry, right? But one of the ways that, that King describes them, it's not that they were angry, is that they weren't willing to really take that anger. Um, and, and, and organize and use it in very constructive ways. So when he eulogizes Du Bois um, in this, in, in this, at this ceremony, he basically says, you know, Du Bois is a figure of what you can do with your anger. Mm. Right? And he uses Du Bois' life as someone who took that anger and was able to organize for his people. Mm -hmm. And he basically suggests that the young people in their anger need to look up to Du Bois. If he was against anger... <laughs> Um, he would not be uttering those things, right. right? And if anger had no motivating power, um, then we wouldn't have the letter <laughs> from a Birmingham jail. So we see in his life and also in his words, um, and there's other, there's other, there's other work, the, the quote, that he wasn't against anger, simpliciter. I mean, I, I think, I think he, he knew the power of anger. He argued for a certain kind of anger, you know, the anger that I'm arguing for in my book. Um, and I think, I think that needs to be part of the record. That needs to be part of the story as well. Yeah.
Agreed. And it, you mentioned early on when you were when you were talking about Dr. King, you know, he's associated with forgiveness and nonviolence to kind of be to the exclusion of anger. Right. And it, it makes me think of a, a question here. And what do you see? I, you have a forthcoming book from Princeton University Press that's dealing in part with the topic of forgiveness. And um, I, what do you see as a relationship between anger and forgiveness? Because I think sometimes people think, you know, you need to release anger in order to forgive. Um, do you see these concepts as an opposition? Um, or is that a false understanding of what it means to forgive or what it means to be angry? How do you see them working in, in perhaps in the, the context of the social justice movements we're seeing right now? But, but feel free to answer that however you'd like. Right, right. So, so it becomes much more complicated when we put it into political context. Yes. But, but let me just say, let me, let me just say this. I, I would say, um, I have a very broad uh, understanding of forgiveness. I don't think that forgiveness is one thing. I don't think um, that it's a, it's a single moral idea. Mm -hmm. um, I'm heavily influenced by the work of, of Kathleen Nurlock and Alice McLachlan on this point. And they kind of argue for, for what they call a multidimensional view of forgiveness. And so um, basically what that view suggests is, listen, forgiveness is a set of moral practices right? Take your pick. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it's a set of moral practices. Uh, McLachlan also calls it kind of non-hostile uh, responses to wrongdoing, right? Um, and these, these moral practices, you engage them so that you can reach one or three aims, or at least this is the desire. There's no guarantee, but you do it with these particular aims in mind, right? You do it with the aim of kind of releasing the offender from any kind of shame and guilt that they have, right? Uh, you do it to kind of relief your, re, get some, provide some relief to yourself if you're overwhelmed by certain kinds of emotions and thoughts and feelings, et cetera, et cetera. And or you can do it in order to reach some kind of repair that can be repair for yourself, right? We call it kind of healing. Um, you can do it to reach some kind of repair with you and the wrongdoer. Doesn't necessarily mean that you quote unquote reconcile, but you do some kind of repair. So even if you decide not to be friends anymore, that's all good, right? So that, that's my, my broad view. Within that view, within that view, the practices um, are not just one, right? So one of those practices could be I decide to forswear or overcome my feelings of resentment. Mm -hmm. That's one way to forgive, right? With those particular aims. Yep. But there's other things I can do. I can keep that anger <laughs> and I can just decide that I'm not gonna retaliate, right? Or I can accept your apology. Mm -hmm. Or we can shake hands on it and, and I can communicate that we're good from now. Like there's a, there's a variety of set of more practices. It's not just yeah. to resentment, however, the resentment account is the most popular account. Um, and uh, I'm trying to get us to kind of rethink that. And I think it's gonna open up a whole bunch of possibilities for us going forward as, as, as people who are in relationship with each other. But, but I think um, giving up resentment is just one, one of the things um, that, 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 that you can do. But the, the popular account um, has an impact, right? Um, and so much so that um, it doesn't really take into account how forgiveness in so many ways is also, uh, this is what Alice McLaughlin calls imperfect, right? So it could be the case that, you know, I forgive you, I decide to forgive you by letting go of my anger. So we good for six months. I feel no anger against you. I'm, I'm being intentional with not feeling any anger. Mm -hmm. And then I watch a show that dramatizes our situation. <laughs> and I'm angry all over again. Here's mm -hmm. the question, did I forgive or not, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Well, right. uh, if you have a view of forgiveness that's not ideal, right, it takes into consideration the messiness of our practices. Yes. Then you're realizing even when I make commitments, there's no guarantee that I may not feel it one day again. 
And then I had to do some more work to try to moderate it, right? Right. Um, um, so, you know, there's this idealized version of forgiveness will have you to think that you ought not to feel any kind of anger. Um, and if you ever feel that anger again, then you never forgave in the first place. And anger is dangerous. So forgiveness must, by any means necessary, must be the kind of the, the, the option that should always be on the table if mm -hmm. you are to be a good moral person, a good political person. I'm just trying right. to disentangle that in the book um, because it could be the case. Um, I want to make allowance and people do. Um, that I can still hold on to the anger. I mean, it's all about moderation, right? Um, or I could participate in other practices and so the anger is still there. And so that's the kind of disentanglement that I wanna, that I think it's important for us to make, right? So it could be the case that someone has forgiven you, but they are still angry at you. Got you. Um, but it doesn't take away that they have, they have forgiven you. So here's, here's where it gets a little bit more complicated when you think politically. The question is, okay, what are we forgiving? <laughs> Yeah. Like, what does that what does that process look like? Right. Yeah. Um, are we forgiven individuals? Are we forgiven institutions? Are we given forgiven people who make up those institutions? Have the wrongdoing ceased? Right. Right. So we're actually going forward and not, you know, kind of in a repeat mode. So it gets a little bit more complicated um, about politically, particularly in American U.S. context, particularly in the context of racial injustice, which is ongoing and ongoing and going about what could possibly be forgiven in a context like this. Um, and how relevant really is forgiveness in a context like this. And I would say it's not as relevant as we might think it is because certain things have to occur uh, for forgiveness to even be an option for us all, right? The wrongdoing has to stop. No one forgives, I forgive you as you keep punching me, as you keep knocking me down. As you, like right. that doesn't, it's after the wrongdoing and we try to figure out the aftermath of wrongdoing. Right. And unfortunately, U.S. is a lot of stuff in which we haven't reached the uh, aftermath. We're still on the present path of wrongdoing. Exactly. Right. So it may be premature to have forgiveness in many of those contexts then, right? right. Yeah. So I want to um, ask you about another concept that you've written about uh, relatively recently is an article. Actually, I saw you give a talk on this um, yes. before the pandemic. And uh, seems was like that our last conference? That was my yeah, last conference. It was. It was. It was Michigan State. <laughs> Michigan right. State. Um, so that was, it was a great talk. And you, you published a piece on it in the, the Public Philosophy Journal about solidarity care and uh, this concept of, of wokeness right and being woke and that that's mm -hmm. a really that's become a very uh a popular concept that people are aware of the term even if they don't know exactly what it means and in that piece you write about kind of the significance of the advantages of being woke right as opposed to you know blissfully ignorant right of social injustice right it might be easier in some ways right to kind of hide your head in the sand but you're arguing you're making a positive argument for the fact that being woke is advantageous. Um, and, you know, I wish, could, could you talk a bit about, you know, in your conception, what does it mean for someone to be woke? You know, like we use that term and, and what, are, <laughs> what, are, what are the advantages of this? What are the advantages of, of being woke? Because I think it's a term that gets some criticism these days too. So I'm interested in your right. thoughts. Yeah. Well, I, I would suggest that even if we place the term with another term, I don't think it's necessarily the term, right? It's what the term is trying to capture. So one of the things that I do in the piece is, um, you know, uh, I, you know, what, what wokeness is alluding to is not a new kind of way of, of, of referring to things, right? So it used to be the case, you know, I grew up in the 90s, 80s and 90s, goes to show you what my age may be, um, <laughs> in which we had conscious rappers, right? So you had yes. uh, KRS-1s, Republic Enemies, um, conscious rappers. And, 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 and so when we were growing up, it wasn't woke. It was like, yo, she conscious. So he con he's conscious, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, both of those are pointing to the same thing. Even, even, those are, are even the 
Baldwin's term words for this, right? Conscious, um, conscious whites, conscious blacks, right? And basically, you know, both of those terms are just trying to uh, capture a certain kind of, uh, of awareness to societal, to societal issues, right? So one is not sleep. <laughs> yes. uh, one is pretty aware of, of what's really going on, right? So it, it, it alludes to this kind of awareness that may not be so apparent to those who are sleeping and by sleep is seductive seducted by everyday occurrences, seducted by ordinary life, uh, seducted by ideology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it really points to this kind of basic awareness about social and political injustice. Um, so, you know, you think about it, hey, if you are aware of these social injustices, I mean, there are some benefits to that, right? So one of the things I suggest is, well, you can only solve a problem once you're aware that the problem exists, right? right. So, so awareness goes a long way because now that we are aware, we have the tools to really change it, right? So there's a there's an advantage to that. Um, but I will also suggest as much as there are, are advantages, there's also disadvantages, right? Um, I mean, you, you kind of indicated that ignorance is bliss. I mean, in lots of ways, yes, it is. Um, so much so when you are aware of societal and political injustice, I mean, you, you know, a lot of us have experienced this in this year. I mean, hard to sleep, yes. can enjoy the things you once enjoyed. I mean, there's right. been studies to suggest that uh, kind of victims of day-to-day -day racism, you know, at the end of their lives. I mean, you see that in kind of their stress levels and in their health, right? Mm -hmm. It has, has, has effects on our psychic well-being. It has effects on our, on our health. Um, so uh, th there's some disadvantages there, right? And so on one end, you got advantages. On the other end, you got disadvantages. The question yeah. is, what do you do with all of this, right? right? And one of the things that I want to suggest is you know, of course, you don't just want to be aware of the problem. I mean, we really want to do something about it to eradicate it. Um, and, and what a lot of people, you know, just simply like to talk about is the fighting component of this thing, right? So I'm aware, so now it's time to go fight. It's time to go fight against the man. It's time to go fight for injustice. One of the things I want to suggest is that, listen, because, you know, being woke comes with this kind of psychic harm, and because woke is so important, I think what we what we need to, to do is to begin to learn how to take care of each other, right? So that we can live to fight another day. Right? Yes. Given all the, the epistemic and the, the the existential kind of disadvantages of, of, of wokeness, I mean that can take such a toll. Uh, but our lives are important. And so, you know, how can we make sure that this wokeness uh, don't work on the detrimental side um, to to you know, not to our benefit? Then we start to take care of ourselves. And and one of the things I'm I'm trying to kind of emphasize, I think there's been some kind of rhetoric um, and some praise of kind of self-care, 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 self-care. Yeah. Um, and I think what we're forgetting is that, you know, self-care, I mean, in order for that to even happen, I mean, I kind of rely on other people so that I can engage in self-care, right? So just reminding people of our relationality, uh, reminding people about interdependence, reminding people um, that we got to take care of each other um, and, and trying to figure out how to properly do that as such. Um, and reminding people that even when you begin to take care of yourself, um, there are people that's always joining in. So just, just reminding people, as much as we, we, we need to fight, um, we also need to take care of each other. Yeah, and you, that's, that's a really great point. And you mentioned, I mean, you know, the article, obviously, that, that concept of solidarity care. And yeah. I, I love the fact that you emphasize the interdependency, the need um, not just to look to ourselves, but the fact that we're also relying on others to be able to stand up, right? right. And, 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 you know, so I guess, do you think that that, that notion of solidarity care, um, well, actually, let me ask you this, what, what might that look like, like even maybe in your experience? And do you think that's de-emphasized in the discussion of being woke or being conscious? Like, is that something that you think should just be 
a greater part of those conversations um, uh, or kind of a part of being part of being woke and part of being conscious is recognizing the need for that form of care too. Like, what do you see the, as the relationship between those two? Yeah, I think it's more of the latter, but as I also think that there's some seeds of the first, right? I mean, I mean, think about this. I mean, here we are as professors and we understand that we are in service to our profession and our, and, and our college community, right? To our students, right? Mm -hmm. What do your typical day look like, right? So you imagine what your typical day look like. You know, I just told you that I just got finished teaching, right? So yeah. I just poured so much into, into my students. Um, and I got to do this again tomorrow mm -hmm. and the next day and the next day. And even on the weekends, I'm tempted. <laughs> like, I don't know, you know, know if I should rest this weekend or not, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. When, you're, when you are doing work of service, you are constantly serving, True. right? And you not only are constantly serving, you're also constantly talking about serving. <laughs> Right, right, right. Right. Um, and we don't think about that to really be an effective, uh, an effective servant. There's certain things that you have to do to continue this in the long haul. So much so that if you don't, you can do more harm than you can do good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you think about you think about teachers who like don't like their students. Are like you know where did where, where did that come from all of a sudden? Yeah. Right. People who just check out and decide, you know, I'm not doing any service whatsoever. Where, where did that come from, right? A lot of that has to do with burnout. Um, a lot of that has to be not being feeling supported in, 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 in the faculty. A lot of it has to do with issues. I mean, issues at home, just being human. Like, we can't really serve unless we are taking care of ourselves, right? And supporting each other. I mean, if, if that happens on a very meta level, right? Yes. Why do we think that's not as necessary? When we're fighting against extremes, you know, uh, forces such as uh, racism, such as sexism, such as homophobia, mm -hmm. right? Those mm -hmm. are some powerful forces, and it's cool to fight, right? We got the fists in the air, we got the rap songs, the indicated, you know, uh, it's cool to fight and to be a fighter, but 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 fighters need to be cared for in battle. And they never just care for themselves. You got the nurse on deck. You got like, we, we, yes, we can fight together. But if we don't remember that there will, there will be some casualties, there will also be some scars. And if we're not tending to ourselves, we cannot fight. And if we cannot fight, we can't get the just war that we're, that, that we're aiming for, right? So one of the things that I notice in rhetoric is that we're not talking about that latter part. We're talking about the enemy. We're talking about fighting. Here are some ways to fight. We're talking about the enemy. We're talking about some fighting. We're talking yep. about more ways to fight. We're talking about something like that. It, and the care thing just goes out. And then you may have recently in the last couple of years, you may have, okay, and um, we need self-care. And I'm like, well, there are some people who just can't self-care if all we're doing is self-caring, right? It requires us to help each other out. Right. Um, that just as we're on the battlefield together when it comes to fighting, we're also on the need to be on the battlefield together when it comes to caring. And just, you know, I just see that net neglect in the rhetoric, not as much, but I also see it as, as vital and important to any kind of service um, work. Yeah, and no, I think that's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really fascinating point. And I think you're right. I mean, it's one that seems undervalued and kind of uh, just maybe taken for granted, right? I mean, I think uh, even just thinking about um, some work I've been doing with students recently around, you know, what it means to be recognized as a person, what it means to be supported in a community and, and how, you know, so much of the history of philosophy is this very kind of independent focused view of what it means, like very individualistic, right? And it takes 
so many feminist scholars, for example, to kind of point out just the essential aspect of inter interdependency that makes us what we are and who we are. And I think you're you're bringing that out in a really crucial way in social movements as well, right? And activism movements too. So I, I appreciate you making that point. Um, so uh, Maisha, I wanna to transition to uh, a standard feature of our podcast here that we call the lightning round. And All this right. is uh, five short questions for you that help our listeners to get to know you a little bit better. Okay. And um, I think I'll just jump right into it. So the the first question is, so I know you are a lover of vinyl. I can tell from your, <laughs> your Instagram yes. posts that you're a lover yes. of vinyl. Uh, if you were stranded on an island today, and that island also had a record player somewhere, uh, and you could have one album with you, uh, uh, which which would it be and why? Uh, you know what? You know what? Earlier today, I think I had a premonition, right? Because <laughs> I was playing some records this morning. And I was having a premonition about someone asking me like, what is your favorite album? And my response was, that's blasphemous to even ask me that question. <laughs> oh man, that's tough. That's tough because it's blasphemous to even ask me that question, right? That's a tough question, I know, I know. I mean, because, because even the way in which when I think about anything dealing with faith, I immediately look at my record collection and look at the ways in which I've divided them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the best ways to answer the question through division. So like, I am, one part of my collection is up until the 70s, right? So I got jazz up until the 1970. Mm -hmm. um, and then I got 1970 to 2000. Mm -hmm. And then I got, you know, 2000 to now, right? So just that jazz collection within itself. Yes. Um, I choose three records from, so let me just choose three records from each of those, right? Sure. Um, if I can. So my, my favorite album pre-1970, of course, is Love Supreme, John Coltrane. Okay. Um, I was going to say that as the one I take on the island, but then I wanted to be... Yeah, I wanted to that's be a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. Good start. Um, <laughs> okay, so then from 1970 to 2000, you got Herbie Hancock. I'm, I'm going to go with the Headhunters album. Um, yeah. Go with the Headhunters album. All right, this is what's going to get tricky because I have several favorites in this category. So from two, 2000 until now... Yikes. Uh, who have I been playing a lot? Um, okay, Kamal Williams. Um, oh. He's a keyboardist from the UK, uh, amazing brother, but I have all of his albums and I refuse to just choose one. <laughs> so here's his archive. His archive would be my, okay. my, my favorite jazz from, from, yeah, this era now. All right, good. Some good recommendations for our listeners. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> so this one, this one is again for today. So your answer different okay, could be okay. tomorrow. A different answer tomorrow but uh if you could have dinner with any two people tonight let's say pastor they they, okay pastor president pastor president uh who would they be and why okay so i have three right now i'm trying to figure out which one i'm going to eliminate okay i think um i'm gonna go with audrey lord mm. and zadie smith all right fantastic good dinner a bonus question uh where what would you eat well, I'm a vegan, so <laughs> <laughs> what I would eat would maybe maybe different from what Audrey and Zadie would eat. Yeah. Uh, what would I eat? Oh God, what's my favorite? Um, I've also had a very strange relationship with food during quarantine, so I think that's that's influenced the yeah, difficulty sure. of this question. I think my brain is just tired of eating the same old food. Have that happened to you yet, Michael? Oh, most definitely. Uh, I'm super yeah, yeah. So I'm trying to think of something that I really, really want. Um, favorite meal. Ooh, this is tough. Um, mm, yikes. Okay. Let me just say this. My favorite meal would be anything that my mother cooks for me. She's no longer with us. 
But anything she cooks for me, I'm pretty sure, you know, if she was to come back, it would be the most delicious meal I've ever eaten in my life. There you go. So what's a, what's a hobby you like to do outside of work? You're obviously a very productive scholar, productive teacher, productive public intellectual, but what's, what's a pastime that you like to do outside of work? Yeah. So let me give I'm going to tell you my new hobby. So yeah. uh, for the last couple of months, I've been obsessing over F1. Um, and oh, like obsessing. Like race car driving? Race car driving. Yeah. Okay. Formula One, Formula One. Yeah. So I've been obsessing over Formula One, wake up five o'clock, six o'clock on the weekends just to watch it. Um, I'm obsessed with F1. So in my spare time, in addition to right um, to watching F1 uh, races, I bought a sim rig, a simulation driving simulation rig. Wow. Um, and I just basically been playing a lot of simulators. And of course, my favorite simulator right now is, is Formula One um, and driving the silver, the zero arrow. Um, but yeah, so racing sim- simulation has become like a new hobby for me. Yeah. Um, it, it's super duper fun. <laughs> Michael, fun. super duper fun. fun. So, yeah. Um, so what is, uh, what is a movie that you've watched in quarantine that you've, uh, you've very much enjoyed? One that sticks out for you. Mm, quarantine. I think I recently watched, I mean, this is my favorite movie of all time. Um, the Last Dragon. Last Dragon, okay. The Last Dragon. So Last Dragon is, a, it's a cult classic in the black community, Michael. Yeah. Um, but 1985, released by Motown, um, had Vanity in it. Um, it's basically Bruce Leroy. <laughs> Bruce Lee, I'm pretty sure people who are familiar with the movie is probably laughing right now, but uh, Bruce Lee, Roy Black, uh, Kung Fu Master from Harlem. Um, right. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, Shogun, who's the master. I mean, it has all the right quotes to make you laugh. Um, it's a hilarious movie. I really like like New York City, like 85, 86, 87. Like those years on film is just so appealing to me. And, and, and it's a super duper funny film with great music um so yeah last dragon all right good tip and last but not least um what is one of the best pieces of advice you've received in your life Mm. you know my mother um she was uh physically handicapped so she was born with a, a birth defect so she was in the wheelchair all of her life um and you know she had to navigate the world uh, trying to fight against misconceptions about who she was because she was in a wheelchair. Um, and she divided, defied a lot of expectations. And I, 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 one of the things I will always remember um, just hearing her exemplify and also tell me and my sister is, you know, never let someone tell you what you can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I honestly believe that if I put my mind to something, um, you know, there's nothing that I, that I can't do. That's awesome. And I think that's a good, that's a, a good line to finish on. So I, I appreciate you sharing that and appreciate you being with us today too. It's been really, it's been really great to catch up with you and talk with you again. Yeah. Likewise. Likewise. Um, good luck with everything. Good luck with your forthcoming book. I know you don't need any, but we'll, we'll look forward to it. Oh, I need all the luck I can get brother. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We'll talk to you again. Take care Maisha. It's been awesome. All right, you too. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Ethicist Corner podcast, a production of the Kegley Institute of Ethics. To hear future episodes, follow us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or iHeartRadio.